0: you hear that i listened to that while i was getting ready for church this morning and then played it again driving to church and it helped me not get angry at all the bad drivers it's a blessing now there at the end when it sounded that man like that man had that death rattle <laughs> he he was giving a recitation you couldn't hear it but it was very powerful i'll try to put that up on my facebook tonight if you want to hear it it was really a Great, great encouragement. It was a good encouragement what we heard. I want you to turn to Philippians tonight. So glad you're here. Thank you for being here. I don't ever take it for granted. I was with a group of pastors many years ago. And uh, we were just sharing some things. And one of the uh, kind of topics that came up was... Uh, what are the, the special things to us in the ministry, being able to be in occupational ministry. And we were sharing things. And it came my turn. And I said, you know, fellas, I said, I'm just amazed that anybody would show up to, to listen to me preach. I really am. And uh, you feel that way too, don't you? I really am. Thank the Lord for The fact that he would use us, use me. One of the most important books uh, that I read uh, in the 1980s, the later 80s, and also that was written in the 80s, in my opinion, was written by one of my favorite writers ever. He went to heaven this past uh, summer, and uh, I purpose to read something of his every day for the rest of my life. And to listen to something that he said, not maybe daily, but on a consistent basis. And I've kept that promise. His name is Warren Wiersbe. He was a pastor in Chicago, Kentucky. Tremendous writer and uh, and a very, very godly man. If you ever listened to Wiersbe preach, he, he was not dynamic. Uh, how many of you ever heard Warren Wiersbe speak preach? A lot of you have was not a dynamic man at all but uh, he had a very powerful message because of first of all who he was very genuine man but then because of what he said but uh, his pen was even more powerful than his pulpit and that was really saying something wrote over 150 books and was just him and i were talking a couple of months ago Uh, Just amazing how he was able to write uh, about the Word of God and let the Word of God speak for it. But there were some very high-profile moral failures of some famous television preachers. And the blowback came on God's people. Uh, In fact, there there used to be younger people, don't remember this program, it was called Nightline i used to kind of watch it uh every night it was before cable was really hot and uh a guy named ted copple did it and it was usually really good they had like a little 30 minute synopsis of the news on at ten thirty at night and uh i believe this is still the number one rated nightline program of all the things they covered wars and everything it was a was, was an interview that he did with, with one of these people. And uh, anyhow, and one of them called him a, a scab on the face of the earth or something. And when he did that, he was living in immorality and it just became a circus. The devil got into it. Some of you are tracking with me because you remember this. And it really hurt in the name of Jesus. And I remember there was a day when it was an honorable thing uh, to be a, a pastor and and so forth. Well, boy, that that took it right out. And all of a sudden, people became very cynical about preachers. Television kind of made it that way anyhow. But now the reality was people thought preachers were immoral. They were after money and, and not to be trusted. So Warden Wiersbe took what happened and he wrote a book called The Integrity Crisis and it was a call to Christians and to churches and to spiritual leaders that they would become what God had called them to be and that is to be sought before they were liked Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 and 16 he said I want you to be he didn't tell us to do it he said be it because that's who you are let your light shine you're already light you're already salt but it's interesting he said before your light which is your external witness you need to be the salt of the earth salt speaks of character your inner character which prevents corruption and it speaks of your character and that's why i've always emphasized uh, as, as a leader, as a youth pastor, as a preacher, and hopefully in my own walk with the Lord, that it's more important what you do, or excuse me, that's not correct, what you are and who you are than what you do. Because I've seen too many people that were very clever and very gifted and do some really good things, but they they weren't salt. And really that book is a call to be salt before we, we try to be light, I think that sometimes when you invite people to church and you want to talk to them about Jesus and they're not interested, they don't want to receive your invitation, they're not interested in the gospel, there's a lot of reasons for that. But one reason, a really big reason, is they knew somebody very dominant in their life that talked one way and lived another and they just categorized everybody in that arena. And you're just one of those people. They don't even know you or maybe they do know you at work. And once they find out you're a Christian, they become very suspicious of you. And if you begin to to talk about those things, about God and the Bible and Jesus, they, they begin to give you an emotional stiff arm because they don't trust you because they put you in that category. Well, What do we do? What do we do with situations like that? Well, that's what this... This passage is about, and uh, the title of the message, and it's really going to be kind of over three or four weeks as we go through this, Conduct Becoming of a Christian. Because when you lose your integrity, you lose your witness. When the messenger contradicts the message, the message is lost. The Bible teaches that, in a way, the messenger is the message. Now, you are not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus But you represent Jesus, and in that sense, when the messenger contradicts the message, the message becomes lost. So the idea, you'll see it as we look in the passage here in a moment, that your daily life must reflect the gospel in Jesus Christ. It must reflect Christ. So here's what he's doing, is he's appealing to them to live what they believe. And I'm not going to read all of this. In fact, the section that we're dealing with is Philippians 1, 27 through 30. But we're just going to deal with just one line or two, because I gave you the introduction last week. In verse 27, I really want to drill down on something here. This is important. Now we don't have a full house here tonight, but that doesn't matter. You know, I think it was uh, Ari Torrey, he had a... A prescription for revival and the first one was let let a few get thoroughly right with God. Let a few get thoroughly right with God. Notice in Philippians one twenty seven. He said, Only let your conversation, and we talked about that, the way you live, your manner of living, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or whether I'm sorry, or else be absent. I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. I uh, was working for the city of Huntsville and still do a little bit of work for them sometimes. And was introducing one of the men that, uh, that I work with to my parents. My dad had had a stroke. He was in a wheelchair. He was cognizant of what all was going on, but... He uh, he couldn't talk well. And so I was walking, sitting in, in a football stadium. And I was introducing this man that I worked with. I still work with him, son. To my mom and my dad. I said, hey, this is, this is my mom and my dad. And uh, he acknowledged him and so forth. And this is probably... Daddy's been gone 11 years. This is probably 13 or 14 years ago. And he said something that, that disarmed me. I really wasn't ready for it. But I was sitting down by my parents. And I stood up and then I remember sitting down while he, he was talking. And he said, yeah, i like, Rick, he's my friend. And then he said this. He said, Rick, it's the real deal. That's what he said. It disarmed me because, you know, how do you respond to that? Yeah, you don't do that. Rick is the real deal, and then he left. And then he got me thinking, I've established some credibility with him, but also he's watching me. He's watching me. I've invited my, my friend to church here on many occasions, I've invested in that relationship. I still am. Uh, every year he has a birthday, I, I get him something. Uh, having a birthday coming up. I'm going to get him something, do something for him, serve him. I've invited him to our church. lie. hasn't been to our church. Recently, there was a, a, a conflict in the area where we were working. It wasn't with he and I. It was another person that is never up there. But he was, this other person came up there, and he was trying to start something with me, and I wouldn't, acquiesced to it. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. I just kept right on with what I was doing. And it was, I was agitated about it, but I thought, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going there with this guy. I'm going to stay about what I'm supposed to do. Be professional, most of all. I, I know people are watching me. The next day, um one of the men that I just told you that had told my parents that I was the real deal, and then another man the very next day. And one of the reasons I do this is because sometimes preachers live in ivory towers, and then they ascend to their pulpits and give condescending comments to the people. And they have no idea what it's like to be around people that curse and swear and use the name of God in vain or to have conflicts, and they, they don't know, and I... everybody does in the family and stuff like that but still so I'd like to to be involved with something like that and it's good Daniel uh, has a work when Tim was here he he worked for years in a job brother Gary was has done that and I I think there's some value to that I don't think you have to do that but I think it makes you a better pastor but anyhow the next day, I saw them after this this conflict, attempted conflict, anyhow. And uh, one of the men brought it up. Said, "What'd you think about yesterday?" I knew what they were talking about. I said, "Oh, you mean, you mean that that guy?" I said, "Well, you know, I said I learned a long time ago that uh, you need to be nice to the guy that delivers your paper. One day, you may he may be your judge in the courtroom." I've just learned to be good to everybody. You never know. And I said, it's not about me. I'm up here to serve people and to help people. And then one of the men said this. I was watching you. I was watching you. And I had already preached the first message, but it, it came back to me while I was preparing this. That these two men are watching me. Somebody's watching you. They're watching you. Notice in verse 27 only let your conversation be as it becometh, as is suitable, as is appropriate, as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Don't take away from the name of Jesus. People are watching you. In the early church, the name of Christian was not given. Until the church was was um, 10 years old. The church of Antioch. And then it was a derisive term. It was to make fun of them. They were originally called of the way. And they the people of the way. That's what they call Christians. But the Bible says in Acts 11 they were first called Christians in Antioch. Three times. It's only used three times in the Bible. The word Christian. Now the word is just... The word we use to describe believers. But do you know what the word Christian means? Most of you know this. It means little Christ. It means little Christ. So when you hear the word Christian, it means someone that belongs to Jesus Christ. And God knows we don't reflect that a hundred percent. But as I preach this morning, there ought to be a growing resemblance. You know, we we can drift away from the Lord gradually. Why can't we be sanctified gradually and become better and more holy like Jesus and become the gospel, become like Jesus? Because people are watching us. Our neighbors are watching us. Our children watch us. Our relatives watch us. When you go to ball games, the people that sit around you, they watch the way you cheer and you pull for people. I remember sitting by Paula at games and a uh, kid be pitching on the other team or something and, uh, and he would walk somebody, walk in a run that maybe tied the game. And I'd watch his mother over there and really a walk is the kid made a mistake. But our kids didn't do anything. He didn't earn it. He just didn't swing in a bad pitch, which is really not a high level skill. So our, our folks go crazy and maybe I'm a little too analytical about it. But I tell her, I'm not a legalist about it. I said, don't, don't cheer that. I said, why? I said, well, look at that mom over that's her son. Right there, that's her son, just threw the ball. I said, I wanna win, but I don't know. There, there's just some things to me that are bigger than winning how would you feel if that was Jake out there and this happened? I think it did. I don't know. Jake was pretty good hurler. But how would you feel if that was Jake? I mean, I told you I'm a little deep about it, but, but maybe that's why I never coached real long. Only 20-something years. I, I used to put out a little newsletter for our teams and had the name of the team. And they had statistics and it had a character quality and some things. And then on the banner it said, uh, Winning isn't everything, but the effort to win is. Because I wanted to teach them character. Alexander the Great came in to see a soldier. He came into a company one day. He saw a lazy soldier and he got on to him, rebuked him. He said, What's your name? The soldier was very frightened. He knew he could be killed. He said, sir, my name is Alexander. Alexander the Great said, well, either change your name or change your ways. And I think that's a good word for us. We either need to change our name as Christians or change our ways. Don't, don't tell people we're Christians. Mahatma Gandhi, the influential Indian leader who blended different religions, Christianity, Islam, and hinduism and made a a system of morality was fascinated with the teachings of christ but was anything but a christian i read where he stayed with a family that that was christian and they were professing christians and he was interested in christ he was interested in the gospels and who christ was so he stayed with this family but he was not impressed with their lives and when he left there, he purposed that I will never be a Christian. And here's what he said. Some of you know this Mahatma Gandhi, who was, who was never a Christian, he said, I would have become a Christian if it weren't for Christians. E. Stanley Jones, a great missionary, interviewed Gandhi and he asked him, He said, Why did you reject Christ? And I quote, This is what Gandhi told E. Stanley Jones. He said, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. Now, that can be debatable if you reject someone, you, you know. But here's what he said. I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians, this is convicting, are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. That's very profound. It's very simple, but it's very profound. Listen, the way we live either points to Jesus and the gospel, or it detracts away from the gospel. Now, the best argument for the reality of Christianity is not intellectual. Now, <clears throat> we're living in a time, and I appreciate uh, Ravi Zacharias. He's one of my favorite speakers. We've shown some of his stuff here. I love Ravi and other people. I appreciate the ark that they've built up in uh, Kentucky. Is that where it is? Outside of Cincinnati. I'd like to go there and see that. I haven't seen it. I appreciate creationism, emphasis and all these things. Uh, and God bless Henry Moores. God has raised these people up. But there's, a, there's an emphasis today on apologetics. And the idea is this, is that the reason people, in fact, there was a book written about it, that the reason kids are leaving the church is because people are mocking their faith. I read that book, and I disagreed with a lot of the premise of it. Some of it I agree with, but some of it I disagreed with, from the biblical paradigm. I said, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think a lot of kids are leaving the church because their parents and their pastors And the people they go to church with, like Gandhi said, are not living like Jesus. That's what I believe. I'll prove it in a minute. It's not because they can't explain how come the Grand Canyon has different strata in it. Well, if you explain that to me, I'll surrender my life to Jesus. And if you can tell me how come they're identifying new stars and the age of the stars, then I'll I'll become a Christian. Now, once again, I want to come back. There's a place for this in apologetics, which doesn't mean to apologize. It means to give an answer. We get the word apologetics from 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. The Greek word there is apologia, A-P-O-L-I-G-I-A. It means to give an answer. So you need to be given be able to give an answer to these people that have these questions and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear and when you and I've given this before I'm gonna we'll do it again tonight because I'm talking about it but on every apologetics website on every textbook I'm not anti I'm just biblical all right you'll see that verse But what is that verse talking about? The book of 1 Peter is about suffering. If you read 1 Peter 3.15, which is the verse up there, and you read verse 14 and verse 13 and verse 16 and verse 17, you know what it's about? It's about people that are suffering without complaint. It's about people that have a good attitude. It's about people that are plowing on and they're sweet. It's about people that keep the faith and have a positive spirit in spite of that. And they don't blame God. That's what it's about. Now look at the verse with me. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So here's the issue. What is the question that you will be answering? Is it about the Grand Canyon? Is it about the speed of light and stars that they're just now finding? Is that the question? Now I'm not saying you can't take 1 Peter 3 and apply it, but that's not what the question is. Here's the question. How do you suffer so well? That's the question. Listen carefully. The best apologetic is one of behavior and spirit, not of the mind. The smarter, listen, the smarter you get about the Bible, the more arrogant you become. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Bible says knowledge puffs up. I believe you ought to know the Bible. If you come to church here, we preach the Bible. I, I give you a Bible, line upon line, precept upon I believe the Bible. I believe you ought to know the Bible. But I also believe you ought to apply the Bible. And uh, in fact, I didn't finish my message this morning, but that was the second part about backsliding, is people get backslidden because they don't apply. They don't apply what they know. They know too much. We're educated beyond our obedience. And and what will what will make you attractive to lost people, or at least give you credibility, is not your knowledge. Wow. You sure do know a lot about the Bible. Because the next step is, you sure do debate good. You sure do make me insignificant with your knowledge. I'm being really sarcastic now, just in case you don't know. Th- that's not winsome. It, it's it's your humility. It's your grace. It's your love. It's your it's your obedience. It's your kindness. It's your Christ-likeness. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 is about. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always... To give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope. Not the knowledge. Of the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. How do you do that? How do you live that way? How can you do that? And tonight I, I'm just pleading with you. I'm going to get into the text and, and till it out a little bit. I don't know how far i get. But I, I plead with you. And beg with you. For the sake of your children, your grandchildren. For evangelism. For everything that we're trying to do on this corner and for the name of Christ. This this is a biblical paradigm. It's foundational. In my reading this week, uh, again, Warren Wiersbe tells about a family that came to their pastor. They said, Pastor, we've discovered that some of our neighbors are believing a false gospel. Do you have some literature that we could give to them? And their pastor said, well, yes, I do. And he said, let me show you some literature. And he opened his Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2. He said, here's the literature. 2 Corinthians 3, 2. ye are our epistle... Paul wrote to the Corinthians, ye are our epistle, you're the letter, you're the Bible, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. He said, you're the literature. The pastor told the family, he said, the best literature in the world is no substitute for your own life. When they see Jesus and your behavior, it will open up opportunities for you to talk about the gospel. Now, there is a time for you to talk about the gospel because they can't get saved without the gospel. But the biggest impediment, the biggest impediment to people getting saved is what Gandhi said. I would have become a Christian were it not for Christians. And we need to lift high the name of Jesus so people can see him. But many times they can't see him because of us. Now, there's three uniquenesses in the life of a child of God. I'm just going to mention the first one, and I'm not going to dig real deep. But I want this to be an encouragement to you tonight, as it's been very helpful to me. It's been so encouraging to me. If you want to live a life that's going to speak well of Jesus, number one, in the text, in verse 27, He said, I want you to stand fast. Stand fast. Fast. Now I almost changed that because we, we don't speak that way anymore, but I, I did some research on it, and it's actually a, a mili, military parlance still. And it's a military term. The word stand fast means that you're not going to move during pressure and adversity. You're going to stand fast. The best, One of the best things, it's not the only one, One of the best things that you can do to show that you're a Christian, to speak well of the gospel, is to stand fast. The Greek word there means to be in a stationary, fixed position. It means to be anchored in one place. When a soldier would hold his position on the front lines, he could not leave that position or the enemy would overtake it. When the Romans would fight, they would get into a offensive or defensive formation and they would take their shields and they would join them, not, not attach them, but they would put them close to each other and uh, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, so that they could not be penetrated. And each soldier was critical to that position. So if they wanted to take territory, they would go in lockstep. If they were in a defensive posture, and you've seen this in movies somewhere, they would let the arrows go and they could deflect the arrows with that or the uh, soldiers would come in with the swords but they were they were to stand fast and this is a picture that god has given to us as christians that were to be as dr robertson used to say when i would hear him preach to be steadfast because listen you got to stand fast because you're in a war it's not a playground when you leave tonight, it's not all fun and games. You have an enemy. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to steal your kids. He wants to wreck their lives. He wants to rob you of your testimony. He hates you. He hates you. He wants to rob you of your purity. You must. You must stand fast. You must be steady. This message goes, hand in hand what I gave you this morning. Don't be be flitting about. Don't don't be drifting away. Stand fast. Notice in verse 28, uh, he talks about adversaries. Your adversaries. Notice in verse 30, he talks about the conflict. What he's saying is this, is you're involved in a spiritual war. You have an enemy. You're fighting Satan. You're fighting demons. And because of that, you're, you're not fighting other Christians. You're not fighting God's people. You're not even fighting lost people. remember one of my teachers in school, he made a little statement one time in class, but I wrote it now and I never forgot it. He said, Lost people are not your enemies, they're victims. Boy, that's good. They're not our enemies, they're victims. They're lost. Our task is to make disciples, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now we've taught that here, to, to make disciples and to mature disciples, reproduce them. That's what we're to be doing, to get people saved, to disciple them, and then to multiply them and to create that ripple that goes on and on even after we're gone and leave this world. But do you know the next verse after that verse? The things that thou hast heard of me, heard of me and my many witnesses to commit thou to faithful man, who shall be able to teach others also. It's this passing the baton off. That's your mission. Look at verse 3. Thou therefore, in this mission, therefore, endure hardness. Those two words mean to suffer. They mean... Experience trouble. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He uses a metaphor of a soldier. You're going to suffer. I remember when I, when I played football, the first, the first month they just tried to run people off. When you go in the military, the, the first weeks, they're just trying to run people off. My boys, that uh, Brian and, and 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 Jeremiah, Isaac's been through all this with with the fire academy. You know what they're trying to do? Yeah, they want to keep. They want to run some people off. You have the not just a physical profile. You have the psychological profile. You don't need to be in here. <clears throat> go go. You can go do something else. Can you endure hardness? This is not for sissies. Making disciples, being a Christian is not easy. No man that warreth, the next verse, verse 4, entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Once again, he hits it again. You're, you're, You're a spiritual soldier and you're to stand fast, to get in there and to hunker down and to be what God has called you to do. Philippians chapter, he opens a chapter. he says to "Stand fast." at the end of the chapter, chapter four and verse one, "Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord." Two times in this book, he opens like bookends, and he closes. He says, "Stand fast, stand fast." Now this is important, <clears> that this is huge. And what are we talking about? Remember what we're talking about? We're talking about giving a good impression of Jesus. To stand fast, to be steady, be predictable. When trouble comes, just be steady. At the end of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13, he uses the same thing. Watch ye stand fast. And the faith, it's the same expression, stand fast in the faith. Then he says, quit ye like men. He doesn't mean go quitting things. It comes from the word acquit. Acquit yourself like a man. Show yourself to be a man, that's what he means. Stand fast in the faith and what God has given to you. So here at the end of these books, at the beginning of Philippians, he's telling them to stand fast. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, be steadfast, unmovable, stand fast. One of the most important qualities you can have is to stand fast, to be steady. Pastors don't do this. Get a church. they will stay for a year. Get another one. Stay three years. Get another one and keep climbing the ladder. They don't realize that there's trouble in every church. And part of climbing the ladder is they want a, a bigger congregation. I suppose. I don't know. I don't want, can't judge motives. At some point, you, you have to bloom when you're planted. You have to stand fast. You have to be steadfast. You have to find an anchor point. This is something the Holy Spirit of God does for you. Because it's unnatural. It's supernatural. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Long-suffering. Patience. Paul prayed for the Colossians in Colossians 1.11. You're strengthened with all might. You've got this power that god gives you according to his glory, his power unto all watches under all patience all endurance long suffering with joyfulness this is not grin and bear it this is kind of a fake thing this is long suffering with joyfulness with all patience a result of abiding in christ this is the power of god so, sometimes with my illness people say well what, how are you doing? And if I know them well, I say, "Well, it depends on what they ask me. I, I can't just give a there's no flat answer for that. But but I do choose my attitude, and that's not always easy. And in that moment, I have to decide I, I'm going to stand fast. I'm gonna I'm gonna stand fast with this even when I don't want to. And, and next week, I'll, I'll come to that and talk to you about about that, how you can do that better. Daniel did a great job with this a few weeks ago. In Hebrews 12.1, we're foreseeing, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us. And watch this. And let us run with Patience. The race that is run before us. Let us run with patience, endurance. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And sometimes, gang, you just feel like you're running in place. Man, I'm working in this ministry, I'm teaching this class, I'm trying to raise these children, I'm trying to get this accomplished. I'm not making any progress. Stand fast. Just stand fast. Okay? Stand fast. Be steadfast. Be steady. Let me, give, let me give you two two thoughts quickly. Really, real quickly. Number one, some people move doctrinally. They move doctrinally. Now, you're living in an age, and if Jesus tarries, all of this stuff about gender and binary, It's going to become where used to, I didn't see this on the horizon, where it was going to be, if you were opposed to homosexuality, you could be put into jail. That's still on the table. And it's not just preachers anymore. It's going to be you. If you want a government job, and then the next tier is just any job where it's going to be illegal to hold that view. But then this thing about gender is just sweeping the nation were names and uh, people don't know if they're male or female or whatever And, and I forget it was either Indiana or Illinois forgive me but it's one of those states where they just made it a requirement that if you take history that you have to you have to have it to graduate and if you teach it if you're a teacher You have to teach the lesbian, gay, bisexual, LGBT, whatever it is. The history of that movement. And if you're a student, you have to listen to it. It's required. You can't graduate without it. And if I'm a history teacher and I'm a Christian, I have to teach it. What happens if I don't want to? By the way, what does that have to do with anything besides... Sodom and gomorrah the United States of America. And so many of these things, well, you have a choice. And I could go, there's so many competing thoughts I have right now. And I, let me get back to the idea of the message. Are you going to be steadfast? Are you going to stand fast? Are you going to change your doctrinal convictions? Now, you kids need to listen to me. Because some of the older people aren't going to have to fight this battle, but you are. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Notice that that's affiliated with spiritual immaturity. By the slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they, they lie in wait to deceive. Carried about with every wind of doctrine. We're confused. Doctrine is so important. And doctrine just shifts. Be steadfast with your doctrine. I remember, I can't remember what one of my kids, it's not important, but I remember years ago, a long, long time ago, when my kids were little. One of them told one of their friends over at the house. They said, my daddy has a reason for everything he believes. And they weren't bragging on me. Basically, it was kind of a complaint that there's some things he won't let us do because he has a reason for everything he believes. What they didn't know is I was flipping on the inside saying, praise God. They may not do everything I tell them, but at least they know I have a reason for everything that I believe. Do you have a reason for everything that you believe. And if you do, are you steadfast with that? Be steadfast. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. Take heed unto thyself, Paul told the young preacher. And not just unto yourself, but unto the doctrine. What you preach. Continue in them. Give the doctrine. Because when you do this and doing this, you will save yourself and them that hear thee. You see, when you hear the doctrine, it it has a sanctifying influence in your life. It makes you more like Jesus. As long as I'm here, we will be a Bible-preaching, doctrinal-based church. And it will have an application bent. Always have application been, But it's going to be doctrine. It's going to be Bible-centered. We're going to stand fast. And then, let me give you this, and we'll be finished. Some not only move doctrinally, but some move as a compromise towards sin. And this is what I spoke about this morning. They begin to accommodate sin. They excuse things, and they end up in a place they never thought they'd be. And some people get to the place where they forfeit opportunities. And God can still use them, but he couldn't. He can't use them the way he wanted to use them. Paul said in First Corinthians chapter nine and verse twenty-seven, "I keep under my body and bring it under subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway." I had a football coach one time and. He didn't believe like I did, and after practice, we talked. He said, Well, that verse means you lose your salvation. I said, No, it doesn't, coach. I said, That verse is talking about your service. The whole text of, of chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians is about rewards, it's not about salvation at all, because he believed you could lose your salvation. He said, Well, it says castaway. I said, Well, the word castaway there means disapproved or rejected. He didn't lose his salvation. He lost his ability to do what he had been doing. He was a preacher. He was a pastor. He can't preach anymore. There's a lot of other things he can do. But it means he's been rejected, put on the shelf from what he used to do because he compromised. Because he didn't stand fast. Because he wasn't steady. Doctrine always precedes behavior. So here's a call for loyalty, a call for steadfastness. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast. Stand fast. Stand fast. Be steadfast. Stand fast. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. This is how you do this. He helps you. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So you can stand. Verse 13, Ephesians 6, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand... Because there are assaults from the enemy in the evil day and having done all to stand. Because the enemy, Satan and his demons, are assaulting your family. and He's assaulting you. And you got to stand fast. The rest of this message is, is encouraging. And I don't have time to get into it tonight. I'll we'll finish it next next time I talk to you, God willing. But uh, it kind of has practice to it. And it will help you. But I just want to leave with that word tonight. This week, just just stand fast. Stand fast. Have you been vacillating? Are you about to do something stupid? Just be steady. Just be steady. Let, Let the Spirit of God help you and empower you, even though you're under attack. Our Heavenly Father, I pray tonight.